empower veterinary leaders to reach their full potential, inspire their teams, drive innovation, and achieve their goals. In this podcast, we speak to hospital managers, company owners, industry leaders, veterinarians, veterinary technicians, and support staff who are at the forefront of animal health. On today's podcast, we're speaking with Emily from Boop Veterinary Social Work Consulting about veterinary social work in the veterinary clinic. So welcome, Emily, our first guest, uh, not to be confused with our other Emily, who is the co-founder of Leading Veterinary Team. Um, You guys already know us, but uh, if you're new listening, I'm Suzanne Thomas. I am the CEO and founder of Leading Veterinary Teams, super, super passionate about helping veterinary leaders grow and be who we wish we had. Um, Emily Z, you want to introduce yeah i'm emily z i am one of the co-founders of lvt um i also am very passionate about coaching veterinary medicine and just really kind of um bridging that gap between our frontliners and leadership and trying to see like where that disconnect is that's where my passion lies and our guest for today emily Emily, number two, (laughs) tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do in the vet med industry. Sure. Um, I'm Emily Carveth. I am a licensed master social worker in the state of Connecticut, and I'm a veterinary social worker. Um, My company, my passion project is Boop Veterinary Social Work Consulting, where I can work with any veterinary hospital in the country. Um, to provide things like team trainings. Some of my courses have been approved for race CE, which is really exciting. Um, I can consult with management and team leaders to improve the mental health and psychological safety of their team members. I can help build hospitals build wellness programming. So that's my that's my passion project and what I'm doing in the veterinary social workspace. And then I am also a practicing therapist. Awesome. We might have to talk later. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. No, I, seriously. I, I think that, um, I think that psychological safety is something that really, really resonates with me as someone who comes from a leadership background and having, you know, worked in places where I personally didn't feel psychologically safe. So Mm -hmm. it's been super important for me to make sure that when I do manage a team that they that they feel safe to come talk to me and they feel safe in their environment. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about what managers can do to, to you know, ensure that their teams feel safe, especially if they're newer managers and they don't really know what that means? Sure, sure. I think, oh gosh, that's such a good question. I think there's lots of ways you can go with this. Um, one thing I always think about right off the top of my head is management as a whole at a hospital lead whoever the leaders are working together is making a commitment to out loud share with their staff that they are open to staff asking questions and advocating for themselves. I think especially a lot of the younger folks out there that are new to the field can kind of feel nervous about asking questions out of the fear of making a mistake or feeling like they failed in some way, but really creating a brave space is about 
sharing with your team members, like, this is okay. This is encouraged. And that really helps lay the foundation that it's all right. It's encouraged for staff members to speak up for themselves and ask for the things that they need. Some folks, um, you know, may need a different type of work schedule because of perhaps disability or mental health challenges they're having. And that being very clearly stated among leadership can go such a long way. The other thing that I've been thinking about a lot is what we call macro level, and that's at the organizational level um, interventions and policies that can really help our team members. So when I say that, I'm talking about things like sick leave policy, bereavement leave, pet bereavement leave specifically, and being willing to make modifications for staff members who, like I said before, may need a non-traditional work schedule based on cognitive challenges, mental health challenges, disability. There, I think what I would, if I was consulting with any team leader now, I would encourage them to think outside the box of the traditional, say, 12-hour schedule or eight-hour schedule. Some folks may need something very different from that. And I think that's been a challenge for vet leaders in the yeah. past. And I'm excited to see some folks opening up that conversation. Yeah. I, think, I think for a lot of hospitals, it really starts with the policies that are yeah. in place with the team members. Yeah, I think that, you know, what resonates with me with what you were just saying as like the first thought in my head was, well, if I have a labor model or a like if I work for a company that has a model that I have to follow that has you know a seven to seven and a ten to ten shift let's say I don't know I'm just throwing something out there um, and now I have to make modifications for somebody how do I as a leader then come and explain to everyone why I keep using mm. Sarah as an example, but uh -huh. um, why does Sarah have to get that? And then there's all of these, like, we have to be sensitive around, mm -hmm. like, not pointing out that Sarah gets the six-hour schedule that's not the same mm -hmm. as everyone else. And mm -hmm. so I, as as a leader, yeah. I would be like, crap, what do I do? Yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh, that's, a, wow, that's such a thoughtful question and thing to be thinking about. I, my gut instinct with that is to really involve the staff member in how they would like the information to be shared, what they're comfortable with being shared. Um, there's really, especially when I think about disabled folks, there is a there is a movement in the disability community to really be out loud with your disability and be proud of it because it's nothing to be ashamed of. Um, but everyone's different about what they feel comfortable with. And working with the staff member, making sure that they have agency and choice in that discussion, how those things are shared. Because I, I can imagine, yeah, leaders get questions. You know, people are curious by nature. That makes yeah. sense to me. Yeah. Um, so perhaps meeting as a leadership team and the staff member, okay, how, how would you feel comfortable with us communicating this? Yeah. I think too, part of that also like to piggyback on what like Suzanne says is you do, we'll, we'll have those also employees that are like, well, 
they're getting that schedule. That's something that like, I would like to do. Mm-hmm. I have kids is another thing that you hear a lot of, there's a lot of working moms and dads out there. How would you accommodate them as well when it comes to those kind of things? It just, we know that having kids is a privilege. Um, it's not something that everybody gets to do, mm-hmm. uh, which is something that I was also passionate about as a leader is trying to have my team spend as much time as they can with their kids, mm-hmm. even if that meant I had to step on the floor and cover a shift. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also hard when they have kids that get sick and those things. So it's kind of pulling away from like their sick days mm-hmm. and their time off that they're allowed to have. So what kind of like accommodations as mm-hmm. a leader would like you say would be like fair and I'm using air quotes um, Mm -hmm. for those kind of situations? That's a really good question too. And I'm (laughs) thinking in real time about this. Um, And I would say, I think, I think for me, it ultimately comes down to like how I'm oriented as a social worker is to like one of our credos is to meet people where they're at. So I think it involves, and this definitely takes extra work on the leadership team's part. Like full transparency is having a conversation with that staff member or even workshopping a group of the parents that work at the hospital. You know, what is it that you're looking for in terms of what would be adaptive and generative to still allow you to show up as your best at work and also have some safety in knowing that if your child gets sick, you can, if you need to run home for a little bit and come back get things set up with the other parent or another caregiver is their leeway to do that. Mm-hmm. And I bet that could be challenging in some situations. So it might not be a hard and fast thing, but I would be interested to hear from the staff members themselves of what they would envision that look looking like. I love that um, in your responses thus far, it's all like putting the onus on the person to be part of the solution, which is, is kind of, it's not funny, but it's, it's kind of funny because we talk a lot uh, about not having like a no complaining rule and making sure you come to the conversation with solutions, not just complaining and having this like negative Mm -hmm. spiral. And so I think that, you know, what, what you're saying resonates with what we've been talking about in, Mm -hmm. in another context, but it's, Mm -hmm. it's relatable and uh, interesting how it all relates. Um, But it's also, you know, important because I think that I'm a parent and, and so it's, Mm -hmm. this makes me think about, you know, how I would be affecting my team if I was working on the floor and I had to go home and I couldn't work for a day or or whatnot. Mm -hmm. Um, And having somebody come to me and ask me, you know, what works for you, I think would make me feel a lot better. And honestly, Mm -hmm. it would probably help the entire culture of the hospital too, if you're being Mm -hmm. asked to be part of the solutions throughout. Sure. That really makes sense to me. It's, it's how I orient myself as a therapist too. I always want my clients to feel like they have choices in their treatment. Like if there's certain modalities that they're really interested or directions they want to go, they can say that to me. Um, They have full access to their treatment notes. If they want them, they just say the word and sign the form. Here you go. Um, So 
preserving choice creates safety for folks. We know that through social work research. Um, So it makes sense what you all are saying about, you know, let's get you involved in this conversation. Yeah, I love that. Be part of it. Now, I know that there are some clinics that are hiring veterinary social workers to work Mm -hmm. within the clinic. Um, What, first of all, do you have experience in that way? And if you do, what does that look like? Like if I'm a hospital Mm -hmm. leader and, and I feel like this is a really important thing to bring to my team, what would I be looking for? And and how is that Mm -hmm. going to positively impact the team? Yeah, um, I do have experience in that setting. They're called embedded veterinary social workers and other mental health disciplines can be hired for a similar role. They just might be called something different. Um, but as I was, I worked for a hospital in Connecticut, um, a large specialty and emergency hospital. And so I was their one social worker. So right off the bat, if you're a large hospital, I would consider hiring more than one veterinary social worker. Um, it was a lot <laughs> and still a really like an amazing learning experience for me. Um, so my, I had a lot of different hats that I wore in the hospital. I was basically, I would describe myself as any human that comes inside the veterinary hospital could potentially be my client. So I supported both the clients and the staff. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, And what that looked like for staff was short-term counseling. I could help them bridge the gap between me and mental health services, whether that was the employee assistance program that we had with the hospital or finding a long-term counselor. I could support them through that. A lot of it was folks coming to me to decompress and and have a safe space to vent if they needed to after a really tough day or if they needed to process a really tough euthanasia or treatment decision that the team had to make that the owner didn't agree with because that happens a lot. And that can cause something called moral injury in staff members where the when the decisions of the owners don't match what the team members feel is the best clinically, that can really affect someone's sense of morals and sense of justice. And so that was a lot of what I was helping folks cope with. Um, I also did some educational workshops, things like communication and de-escalating conflict. I helped with planning some fun stuff for for the fo- for the staff. Like we had a chair massage day. That was really nice. fun. That was one of my favorite things nice. that I got to plan. Not every VSW is involved with that aspect of things, but I really like things like planning, like restorative things like that for my team members. So that was great. Um, and then also talking with management about if they had questions about team members, helped mediate conflict between team members and between like teams as a whole. So that was that side of things. And then on the client side, it was mostly supporting the clients who were facing euthanasia, either anticipatory grief. They knew that decision was coming, but they needed some emotional support around that decision or during, I was able to be present before, during, after, euthanasia. I offered to say a non-denominational blessing over their pet after they had passed. And then I was a resource for follow-up support. 
So sometimes I would do short-term grief counseling. And so that was most of what I did on the client side. Gotcha. Thanks. Gotcha. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really a lot. I think that there's, and, and it's great. I mean, I think that in my experience and Emily, I don't know if you would agree as a, as a hospital leader, um, a lot of that stuff has fallen on us. Mm-hmm. And yep. While mm-hmm. I'm a, I'm, you know, a certified compassion fatigue professional, that only goes so far, True. right? And so mm-hmm. I can talk through, you know, grief to an extent. I, as as you know, and, and most people know, I've been an oncology technician. So death is something that I have uh, unfortunately mm-hmm. been around a lot. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Emily worked in, in ER, so... Mm-hmm. There's a lot of death there as well, yeah, and, and just lot. in general in our in our yep. in our sure. veterinary sure. business, right? Like yeah. a lot of us experience um, that as well as just fatigue and stress in general. Sure. Um, sure. And so the having that additional layer of support is is really really great. Are you finding that um, now that you're kind of off on your own and and doing mm-hmm. this consulting that you're able mm-hmm. to um, influence smaller companies? Cause you said you worked in a larger organization. Um, most of my work so far, I'm really just get, I'm starting to get boop off the ground. My bread and butter so far has been trainings, educational workshops. Um, so I've, let's see, I've worked with another, especially an emergency hospital in Connecticut. My, signature presentation is understanding trauma in the context of veterinary medicine. Cause I, in my clinical practice, I work with folks who have survived childhood or domestic violence, things, lots of trauma yeah. and there's trauma running all through veterinary medicine. So I really wanted to create a workshop that helps the staff members understand what's happening to them in this work and not blame themselves for very understandable reactions that they're having But yeah, the nice thing about my work now is I could work with any size hospital um, as long as it's a good fit. And I would have a conversation with their staff leaders um, about what they're looking for. I can kind of make it whatever they need it to be. The only thing I can't do is do therapy for their staff members. Um, But I could say if God forbid they needed a short-term grief counselor for their staff members. We know yeah. that's a critical need sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I can be that person and help connect their staff members to services. Um, something I'm working on in Florida is developing a member assistance program for the Florida Board of Veterinary Medicine. So that is still very much in the works. So hopefully more news coming soon. That's, but it's great. I'm licensed for telehealth in Florida. Um, so awesome. I connected with Phil Richman, who's a veterinary consultant and a and a vet on the board. So we're working on that piece of thing. So I can go lots of different ways with this that's, work. That's really great, especially um, you know, for those listening in light of, you know, most recent news in mm-hmm. Florida, you know, yep. we're recording this in November of 2023. Yep. Um, and so who knows, you know, you could be listening to this in 2025 and not having any clue what we're talking about, but um, there was a recent shooting in Florida um, Mm -hmm. in a veterinary hospital. And so I think that that, you know, is definitely something that's needed and and thank you for doing that. That's, that's amazing. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a great robust thing. Yeah. Yeah. So when you are contacted by these leaders that are looking for your services and you are like, yep, this is a great fit. I'm going to come on in and, you know, talk Mm -hmm. with your staff. How does the support staff take you coming on into the practice? Um, so far, you know, it's, it's, I've only worked, I admit with one hospital, this is my little baby company that I'm starting. Mm -hmm. It was actually a wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, I presented my trauma workshop and it was, I love to teach. It's one of my favorite parts about my work as a therapist in a VSW. Um, and it was fascinating to see the facial expressions and, body reactions of the staff members as they were absorbing their content, because I really go into like how the nervous system activates as a stressor and trigger comes in. And like, I remember the big moment was sharing with them. I'm like, Hey, have you ever had a shift where say you're working for 10 hours straight and you've had back to back to back cases and you're going all day and then you collapse when you get home and every single person was like well yeah I'm like have you ever blamed yourself for that and they're like yeah we I'm like don't this is normal and so i literally take them through this chart like it's like a roller coaster that can only go up so far and then it's got to come down yeah and it was just really special to see the okay this isn't our fault we're not doing something wrong by wanting to veg out in front of the tv for six hours after we get home it's like yeah this is normal stuff this is human stuff um and i actually was very fortunate to be able to take on some of the staff members as my therapy clients afterwards and so that is something that i offer if they're inside the state of connecticut and they want to work with me then i kind of funnel them over to the group practice that i work for and they become my therapy client so special yeah yeah absolutely i think you know i think it's really it's really cool what you're doing because a lot of I mean you just mentioned that your your trauma workshop and and the kind of the work that you do outside of just this space is is all around trauma and I've found that a lot of like including myself that a lot of people in veterinary medicine are brought into like we are we gravitate towards veterinary medicine Mm -hmm. because animals make us feel better and and it's almost like our own unconscious way of getting our own therapy, right? Yeah. Um, and mm-hmm. so a lot of mm-hmm. the veterinary community that I've interacted with have childhood trauma or yep. have situations that they've been through. And I don't know that unless they've actually explored therapy and and had some of those conversations that people realize that some of their like visceral reactions to things yes. that happen in the clinic are because of things that happened in the past. Um, And I, I mean, I personally have a therapist. I was just joking before, but, and I also don't live in Connecticut. So, (laughs) (laughs) but I I personally have had to work through some of that stuff, even Mm -hmm. as a leader, you know, being able to recognize why certain situations and conflicts within my team make me react the way that I react and how can I react? I can't react when I'm in a leadership role, right? I have to be the calm, the one that Mm -hmm. is trying to make sure that, you know, 
this person and this part person aren't trying to kill each other um mm -hmm. and it might be a situation that's like really that's affecting amazing. me and and yeah. so i think that that having somebody like you and having that like extra person to bounce those ideas off of or or talk through or even say listen i i i'm supposed to be the leader here but this is really affecting me and I'm a person yeah. too, and I can't handle this and having somebody that is able to, to step in. I think that's a really great thing. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you. for yeah. sure. Can't wait to see where this goes. I hope yeah. to go a lot further with this and really start working with management teams Yeah, you know, on the things like policy and psychological safety. Cause that's, it starts, it starts at the top. Yeah. hundred percent. A hundred percent. And you're so right about everything you said about the type of folks that are drawn to the field. We're caregivers by nature. And so many of us caregivers have had, we are working in a way to get our own healing and needs met through service, you know, but that, yeah, it can be difficult to parse out. And sometimes we feel like we're at fault somehow for having these reactions where it's like, no, this is a hundred percent a natural consequence of being exposed to another being's trauma and suffering. Yeah. It's, you will experience secondary trauma. Yeah. It just, yeah. Is a given. <laughs> it's real. It's yeah. real. It's real. It it's it's real. real. Have you, have you, um, experienced i know in my like compassion fatigue training um there there's a lot about the like putting up those barriers mm. and not allowing yourself to feel and doing that for so long kind of makes you almost like numb you no longer even Oops. realize that this is an animal and and mm -hmm. you're treating it and you're supposed to be caring for it because you're protecting mm -hmm. yourself have you experienced that and how do you help people work through that oh gosh that's a really great question because it's something i've grappled with as a therapist even yeah. it's how do you preserve your empathy without it hurting you that yeah. is such a big question um I always liked when someone is coming up against this, I really love to let them know about the work of Judith Orloff, who's um, a psychiatrist and she's also an empath. And she wrote this great book, The Empath Survival Guide, that was like the first glimmer of hope in my own life when I started feeling extremely burnt out and disconnected from my work. Because yeah, that numbness was setting in. I've absolutely felt it. I've worked... And I worked in the veterinary field for about 15 years before I became a VSW. So I was a vet assistant most of the time. And so I was helping with hundreds of euthanasias. And you're right, it after a while, it can it really sneaks up on you, that disconnection. Um, so one exercise of Judas that I love is thinking of a protective bubble around you. And this may seem silly at first, but it's been really helpful for me. Um, and some of my therapy clients, I teach this to too, where it's like a protective bubble where all of the positive emotions like love and connection and empathy can still come in and out to you, but the negative stuff bounces off. So that's been a helpful image for me to take in when I notice my empathy starting to hurt me, but it also lets me still feel, you know, cause I think it's, I think it's really important to be able to still feel, you know, 
still experience the grief and the sadness, but also the joy and the honor that comes with being of service to a creature and their family. You know, it's a mixed bag of stuff. So, but let's feel it all, you know. Well, I feel super calm right now talking to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I do too. And I was like going to ask, I was going to ask a question about like negative empathy, but like now I don't want to like change the mood, but um, the negative sure. empathy, do you think that goes hand in hand with burnout or people confusing the two kind of feelings? Because what you were just describing, I personally thought was like me being burnt out and not wanting to be mm. on the floor anymore but mm. now I'm starting to feel like maybe it was just the negative empathy that was starting mm. to really creep its way in the way I understand it is compassion fatigue and burnout are related but separate um and secondary traumatic stress is the combination of compassion fatigue and burnout so I like to think of bur- compassion fatigue is because of the caregiving work that we do it's the bearing witness to another being suffering can cause symptoms just like PTSD. Whereas Mm -hmm. burnout is when we're in an environment that we reasonably feel does not meet our needs. So like, I think about that a lot for folks who are say in a hospital with unsupportive policies, that's my big red flag that I think of. And if you're starting to notice a lot of turnover in your staff, you know, um, that might be a sign that folks are getting burned out. Um, cause and it goes back to that psychological safety piece. If people don't feel like they can have their needs met, you know, their professional needs, their personal needs, both of those things, if they feel like they really can't make that happen, then they're probably going to get burned out, but they feel really similar, you know? Mm -hmm. So compassion fatigue usually heals in a short period of time. Like if you take a week, two weeks off, a lot of times folks can come back reinvigorated, whereas burnout takes longer to heal from, because if you're taking a break, but then going right back into the same negative environment, you're going to get burned out again. So, you know, that's something I follow up a lot. <laughs> yeah. That's like a big, a big thing for me. Cause I see so many people leaving the field because of the mm-hmm. compassion fatigue and mm-hmm. burnout kind of things. But um, as mm-hmm. leaders, what kind of signs should they, should we look out for with our staff when those kind of things are happening? I know, like you said, high turnover, big mm-hmm. red flags, kind of starting, mm-hmm. starting a little more like burnout. But mm-hmm. when we have, you know, our staff that are starting to become, you know, that compassion fatigue, are there any signs or anything that you've seen or like? Yeah. Um, I think when someone's um, feeling a lot more irritable than you're used to seeing before, that's a big sign. Or if they're a lot more tired than usual, secondary traumatic, secondary trauma can cause tremendous fatigue. Just like if you had PTSD, it can make you, it just saps your energy. Um, If you're noticing a lot more arguments starting to happen between team members, that's something to watch out for. Um, And then if team members are starting to isolate themselves, like where maybe they were really friendly and 
you know, social with their team members and all of a sudden they don't, they don't want to engage in those conversations anymore and are kind of keeping to themselves. That's when I'm always curious, like, huh, what's, what's going on? You know, is there something going on in their personal life or their professional life where they just feel disconnected? Yeah. And then would you just recommend that the leadership have those one-on-one conversations with people to pull them aside and say, Hey, I've noticed this, what's going on? Yeah. You know, and I always say with those conversations lead with curiosity and empathy as much as you can, you know, while still protecting yourself. Um, But curiosity, asking things like it will, like you said, like, you know, Hey, I just, I wanted to share some things with you, but I really wanted to get a sense of how you're doing, how you've been feeling at work lately. Have things been a struggle for you? And you get so much information by how they respond. Watch their body language. If they're looking really closed off and they're not making eye contact with you. Now that can that can vary from person because some folks don't feel comfortable with a lot of eye contact. Yeah. If their bodies are really closed off and they're turned away from you, that could be a signal that they're feeling really shut down in some way. Yeah. The the other thing that kind of comes to mind is I'm I'm always kind of turning around the perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk to leaders, we talk in the perspective of a leader, but what about the leader? Mm-hmm. It, let's say in a big corporation or or something that has a leader, right? A regional, an area mm-hmm. director, mm-hmm. operation or okay. medical, doesn't matter because mm-hmm. we all have people above us in general um, that isn't providing that how do how would I as a hospital leader be able to and and, I mean I could just call you and reach out to you right but how like how am I able to trying to formulate this question Uh uh-huh um how am I able to ask my leader for the support Right. I've worked mm-hmm. in th- this question, just for some background, I've worked in situations where my particular leader mm-hmm. wasn't giving me anything. Mm-hmm. There was no, there was no support. There was no feedback. I had no idea how I was doing as a leader mm-hmm. and I was feeling burnt out because of all of the stresses that my team was coming to me from True. and with, and, and I didn't know at the time, I didn't, have a, enough leadership skill and and background to really know how to handle all of that um and i would go to my leader for some mentorship and some help what would you say to that person that's kind of in that frontline leader position that mm-hmm. is really struggling themselves and yeah. having a hard time giving the support to their team because they can't even give it to themselves. Yeah. Oh gosh, that's great. Um, that's such a juicy question. I love it. Um, full of them today. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I would say if you're going, if you're the leader and you're going to like your upline leader to talk about that, that you're needing extra support, a phrase that I found really helpful when say advocating for myself with my practice owner is something that really helps me is, and then lay that out. So like, for example, I have ADHD. I'm like out loud with it. I've had my own mental health struggles my whole life. And I'm also very anxiously hardwired. So for me, frequent communication is a really good thing with anyone that I work for. And so I've said in the past, like something that helps me is, you know, being able to sound things off of you 
or something that helps me is asking if my practice owner sends me a text at like 11 PM and I'll ask, is everything okay? That helps me because I know it's not an emergency. I don't, my, my poor little heart does not have to freak out as much <laughs> as it by default freaks out, or I can know then, oh, maybe this is something that needs to be handled right away. Um, so maybe it sounds like the question you might be wanting to ask is, you know, something that really helps me is periodic check-ins with you. Is that something that we could set up? Do you have that room in your schedule to make that happen? Because I would love to check in with you just to know that I'm doing okay yeah. and get some extra support. No, that's great. I think that could even work for, you know, the the support staff that is mm -hmm. dealing with a hospital manager who doesn't seem as available. Sure. Sure. Oh yeah. That happens a lot. Cause a lot of times, you know, in veterinary leadership, you're pulled in a thousand different directions and it might be hard to grab a handful of that person's time, but maybe if there's something on the books every week, where you know you can get a 20-minute check-in, that might go a long way to helping that staff member feel more comfortable in their yeah, position. For sure. My goodness. I feel like I could talk to you all day. Oh, There's a, re a reason why I was drawn to reach out. <laughs> um, I, I don't, I don't know. I think, you know, there's a lot that we touched on today. I, I think that, um, what you're doing is is incredible and i can't wait to see you do more and um continue to support you and and uh yeah i mean we are i'm probably just so you know probably gonna cut this part out but we okay. are <laughs> we are uh creating courses and things like that as well and so i like the more we talk, I'm like, we could totally do a collab and, and do oh, something yeah. because I think that mm -hmm. that would be really awesome. Um, but I think to, to kind of wrap this up, cause I don't want to keep you all day, even though I could, um, <laughs> unless Emily, did you have any more questions or anything else that you yeah, want to no. know? Okay. I think it's great that you're talking about psychological safety. I don't think it's talked about enough, mm -hmm. um, especially in the yeah. vet field. Um, yeah. A lot of our leaders that are coming in don't come from the vet field. Um, mm -hmm. So they mm -hmm. don't understand the trauma, the PTSD that we have, the fact that the vet field is broken all around. So I think it's like really, really great what you're doing. I'm a thousand percent behind this. I love talking about psychological safety. Um, just in general, um, to anybody mm -hmm. that will listen. Same. Um, but I yeah. think it's really awesome what you're doing. Um, the vet field needs more of you. So yeah. how do we clone you and get yeah. you in every state? Yeah, seriously. Come to New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, come to New Jersey. <laughs> We're not that far. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we always put it, I put that, put it out there on my website that if people want like an in-person workshop with me, I will go within the tri-state area. I mean, I'm kind of thinking beyond that. Yeah. Like you want to fly me out? I'll come to a presentation in California. Sure. 100%. There you go. <laughs> uh -huh. So I have, I have two yeah. things before we, before we go. Um, one is if you had one last thing to tell leaders, mm -hmm. what would you tell them? Mm. Also with your staff, 
help them, let them get to know you as a person. The more they see you as an actual human being and less as just a manager, it's going to help. They yes. need to know you. Yes. Be you know. vulnerable. Yes. yes. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Please feel free. Feel free to shed tears sometimes with your people. Laugh, burp, <laughs> and do silly things. You know, it's, yeah. it helps. It I helps. Love it. I self-disclose with my clients all the time because I want them to know me. I don't want them to think of me as this like therapist God that knows everything. It's like, no, I'm just another human having a human experience. I may be a little bit farther ahead on my healing journey, but it's like, so I share all the time. This is what helps me. This is what I've struggled with. So, you know, you're not alone with all this. A hundred percent. That's great. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. awesome. My my therapist and I are friends on Instagram because there's <laughs> yep. no reason to like, there's no reason to hide anything. And I'm not going to lie. There's times where he posts some good memes and I'm like, I'm stealing that. And he's like, I knew you would right away. And like <laughs> things like that. But we're just, it's just easier for me to be able to have that conversation with him yeah. more as a human yeah. than looking at him as somebody that's there to help me in my healing journey right. kind of thing. Right. But like, that was all, I was all me. I was like, I saw you on Instagram. Can we be friends? He's like, I'm friends with a lot of my clients. Feel free. You know? Yeah. And I was like, okay, cool. Sure. Like, awesome. Like, as long as you're not weirded out, like that's not, and he's like, no, I think it'll actually like be better for our relationship. And, mm-hmm. and, and it definitely has, has helped. And, you know, I like to tell vulnerable stories uh, mm-hmm. when I would go in as the big person from corporate and do a whole bunch of like presentations and be with teams for like, between one to five days. And I would tell them embarrassing stories that I did like on the floor and stuff. And like, I'm human too. I make mistakes. It happens. But I would also like encourage leaders to do the same thing. And just like when leaders would be bonding with their teams, they're like, yeah, this one place that I worked at wasn't vet med related. They would tell like a story about like how they slipped and fell and, you know, something along those lines. And then they would start coming up with like nicknames for each other and stuff like that. And it really it definitely, you can definitely see the difference of the morale yeah. in hospitals when uh, yeah. leaders are more open with their staff. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. And the the last is how do we, how do we find you? Mm-hmm. How do we get in contact with you? Yeah. Um. I, let's see, my website is boopveterinaryconsulting.com and folks are able to book a call with me right from the site. I'm also on Instagram at Boop Veterinary Consulting as well. And so I post things like slides from my presentation and some mental health stuff, um, but mostly like things, letting people know when my courses are approved, cool stuff like that. And you can always DM me on that Instagram account too. Um, And then my email is emily at boopveterinaryconsulting.com. And I just welcome people to reach out to me or find me on LinkedIn. So there's lots of different ways you can find me. I love it. Well, thank you Mm -hmm. so, so much for taking the time out to hang out with us today and talk about this incredible topic. I feel like we will have to pull something out in the future and really dive into it because Uh there's just so much. And I you know, I started this off saying, I don't know a lot and I feel like I'm leaving this knowing so much more. So thank you so much. And I, I'm really excited to see how your consulting business grows and see the, the industry that you're part of, you know, the, Mm -hmm. the 
veterinary consulting industry really, really impact veterinary medicine. Cause I think that what you're doing is incredible. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for hanging out. Yeah. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks for everything that you're doing too. I think oh, it's great thanks. to keep up the amazing work. I can't wait to see what you're going to come up with next. Um, but Thank definitely you. super excited and I can't wait to do like a deep dive yeah. in the near future. Yeah. yeah. And is it okay if I shout out two of my colleagues? Of really course. Quickly? So I just want to, especially, I always want to thank um, Christina Malloy at Therapy Unleashed in Massachusetts. She was my inspiration and my model for the model I have now. And then Phil Richmond is my colleague in Florida at Flourish Veterinary Consulting. He's fabulous. He's a DVM himself. Um, So I always just like to pay homage to my friends, you know, who have helped me along the way. And the third person that I want to give mention to is who the person who I literally would not have a career and a life as a therapist and social worker without is my clinical supervisor, Tawana Woolfolk, LCSW, who runs Sacred Ground Institute in West Haven, Connecticut. Um, She describes herself as a soul doula, and that's 100% true. Um, I would not be where I am today without her mentorship and love and guidance. So I just want to thank her from the bottom of my heart. And we thank her too. Thank you. Yeah. yeah awesome. awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Seriously. Thank and, you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. And we'll talk soon. Good to mm-hmm. meet you and see you. Yeah. <laughs> Good to meet you too. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye.